This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Nam. And I'm Jamal Dajani. Jamal, we have a great show today. There's a lot to talk about, so many different topics, but today we're going to be covering a lot of uh, interesting topics, including a really great interview you you've done from the Canadian perspective but it'll it'll be really wonderful to kind of talk about that but kind of some of the bigger news uh, in addition to the pandemic in addition to the anti-science mentality that is sweeping Texas and Mississippi and other parts of this country which in my opinion are going to be not just damaging but cause untold numbers of in, you know people dying and getting sick we, we need to talk about what's happening with the ICC, which, you know, is very interesting. We have the chief prosecutor, Fatou uh, Bensouda, and uh, kind of digging into the Israeli atrocities that occurred in 2014. So we, we will talk a bit about that. We're going to talk a little bit about Cornell West, one of the premier intellectuals in, in the United States who is being harassed by Harvard University uh, for his views, surprise, surprise, regarding Israel. And he may not be getting tenure, even though he's one of the most celebrated academics uh, in, in, the, in the world, not just the United States. So, Jamal, we have a lot to talk about today, as usual, here on Arab Talk, and uh, we should get going. That's right, Jess. And so, uh, you know, next week, March 8th, is International Women's Day. So the world celebrates women on uh, March 8th every year in appreciation of their struggles and sacrifices and in honor of their different roles in life, but ignores Palestinian women and their suffering under Israeli occupation, especially women in Israeli prisons. Today, we will discuss the case of Khalida Jarrar with her daughter, an Israeli military court sentenced Palestinian politician Khalida Jarrar to two years in prison on Monday for inciting violence and belonging to a banned organization. Jarrar was arrested at her home in Ramallah on October 31st, 2019 and has since been in detention. The court at the Ofer a military base northwest of Jerusalem also ordered her to pay a fine of about $1,300. Jarrar is a member of the Palestinian Legislative Council. She has been a human rights activist for many years. Her first of several arrests began on March 1989 when she was detained for participating in a demonstration on International Women's Day. She has been active for a number of years in support of Palestinian prisoners and she served as the director of Al-Damir, a prisoner support and human rights NGO in Ramallah. Joining Arab Talk from Canada, her daughter Yafa Jarrar. Yafa is a Palestinian Canadian lawyer. Welcome to Arab Talk. Thank you for having me, Jamal. It seems that Israel is keen on keeping your mother in jail despite the fact that she will be released uh, supposedly in seven months. There is a pattern since Israel has barred her from leaving the West Bank in 1998 that Every time, you know, they let her out, uh, you know, they keep targeting her uh, because she criticizes the Israeli occupation. Do you see it this way? Why are they, why are they targeting your mother? Yeah, thank you. Uh, it's definitely a target. It's a very accurate characterization of what my mom has been experiencing for years um, under Israel's um, occupation and apartheid regime. Um, and that's a very good question. There's, it's always a question that I get asked, why is Israel after your mother that much? And I think um, it comes down to a few uh, factors. Uh, looking at my mom and her political involvement, her um, representation of the Palestinian people, her popularity, um, there was a recent article that was fairly recent uh, published by um, uh, Ramzi Baroud, who's a Palestinian writer, basically um, saying, why is Israel so afraid of Khalid al-Jarrar? And there isn't a simple question, but I think 
if we look at my mom, Khalida, being a human rights activist, being a, a prominent political advocate for women, um, being on, on the left of, of politics, uh, being a secular, being a feminist, in, and not in the Western um, understanding of, of feminism, but actually fighting for Palestinian women's rights and freedoms um, under the occupation, but also amongst our own Palestinian society. All of these aspects um, that my mom um, or characters that my mom has as a human rights defender uh, for years, um, Israel sees that as a, as a threat in itself. So uh, they're not really interested in her, in keeping her um, uh, popular, let's say, in, in the outside amongst the people. Um, and they would rather um, just uh, keep punishing her by incarcerating her over and over and over again. And we saw that um, since 2015, every time my mom gets released, she gets rearrested shortly after. Um, I also do want to point out that I think they do um, see her as a threat from um, what, what they consider a threat um, because of her role internationally. Um, it's no coincidence that my mom was arrested in 2015, shortly after she joined a committee um, that, you know, a Palestinian effort and an international committee to take Israel to the International Criminal Court and to investigate um, uh, crimes um, against humanity, as well as, as well as violations of international laws and human rights conventions that Israel violates on a daily basis. Now, you wrote on Twitter that the timing is not coincidental, and you referenced uh, Palestinian elections. Please elaborate on this. Well, I think we, we do have good evidence and data that shows us that um, every time there is either an Israeli election or an attempt to call for a Palestinian election, because we know we haven't had one in, in over 15 years. So, but every time there's an attempt uh, for kind of any political organizing, whether it be um, within the Palestinian um, authority or the Palestinian people, but also for um, elections in Israel, that Israel launches massive arrests um, in the West Bank uh, against Palestinians who they see might be an obstacle to any outcome that Israel would consider satisfactory for them. Um, so in a way, Israel is really threatened by any kind of democratic process uh, from taking place, including um, an election if there is one to be held. Um, and so, you know, um, the fact that today we have, um, for example, nine members of the Palestinian Legislative Council currently incarcerated in, um, in Israeli prisons is also um, a good evidence for that. And the number, of course, uh, was um, significantly higher right after the, um, the first election that we had back in 2006. So um, I said it was not uh, uh, coincidental because I also feel that um, Israel is not interested in somebody like Khalida Jarrar um, to be um, free and liberated um, in the time uh, for elections. They're, they're really worried about that. Well, uh, actually, according to uh, Palestinian prisoners' rights group at Damir, uh, 4,400 Palestinians uh, are being detained by Israel as of, this, as of January of this year. Mm -hmm. 37 uh, of them were women and 160 uh, children. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, something like this, and, and as an attorney yourself, should get a lot of media attention, especially you've mentioned that your mother is a feminist, and she is a feminist. I mean, she's well known. Uh, you know, her role is very well known. I don't see a lot of like those so-called feminists in the West, uh, you know, mounting a campaign for her release. I mean, we see them kind of mount campaigns uh, all over the world, but when it comes to Palestinians, they somehow bury their heads uh, in the sand. Yeah, uh, that's a very good question. And uh, it kind of speaks to um, the whole notion of what we refer to in amongst the Palestinian organizing communities internationally as PEPS, uh, which is kind of an acronym 
that um, means progressive except for Palestine. And we see that, um, you know, um, in, in, a, in a very large and wide spectrum of organizing in, in Western countries and in particular in North America, including, you know, um, people who are involved in the labor movement, people who are um, involved in the uh, various feminist movements and what have you. Having said that, there are, um, uh, you know, feminists and women organizations in the West and in North America who do advocate um, for for the um, uh, for Palestinian women and who do kind of try to uh, hold campaigns, but they are not the rule; they're the exception. Um, and the reason for that is because it really comes down to. Um, Western settler colonialism and the whole idea that um, Israel has been uh, working so hard to kind of enter into the mainstream. And that is, you know, uh, uh, massive PR campaigns to kind of uh, greenwash um, the image of Israel, to kind of paint the image of Israel as a dem democratic state in the amongst, you know, uh, a bunch of Arab um, states that are not democratic. Um, there's, you know, th there's various links between um, Israel as we know it as a state today and Western colonial states and, and colonies such as Canada and the U.S., for example. So there's always a hesitation to kind of go there. Um, but that also goes um, side, and, side and side with um, the fact that Israel has also launched launched so many campaigns and actual um, political campaigns to uh, label anybody who's who will bring any criticism of Israel to be anti-Semitic, which is, you know, a, a very dangerous and, um, as we know, is a very dangerous territory and has had um, extremely dangerous outcomes, including uh, criminalization of anybody um, in certain bills that have been passing uh, criminalization of, of of anybody who would criticize um, the policies of the state of Israel. This is something that we don't see applying to any other um, state in the world. Uh, but Israel has successfully, um, you know, fear mongered and bullied and, um, you know, uh, washed really uh, the image to kind of equate any criticism of it with anti-Semitism. We do know that um, many organizations and people who actually are decent and can distinguish between what's right and wrong, they, they don't buy this argument, but I think there's fear to just uh, challenge it um, to the point that it should be. Now your mother, of course, spent uh, years documented, uh, documenting Israeli human rights violations against Palestinian children in, in particular and injured prisoners uh, as the head uh, of the PLC's Prisoners Committee and during her former role as the director of Adamir, which is a Palestinian prisoners' rights organization. How much of her role do you think, or, or, or uh, I should say, how much Israel is really worried about her testifying at the ICC uh, now that uh, the ICC said that uh, it uh, will listen to basically uh, Palestinian uh, complaints uh, against Israel. Yeah, and um, I, I no doubt Israel is absolutely worried about her testifying, not just her, but I mean, all the Palestinians, hopefully when we get to that process, um, you know, as we know, we, we wouldn't find one household and one family, in, uh, Palestinian family, whether it be in Palestine or in the diaspora, um, who wouldn't have some kind of um, evidence and affidavits and uh, testimonies to put forward um, in regards to violations of international laws and their own, our own uh, human rights. So um, I would say Israel should be worried about this. I mean, um, Israel has been acting with impunity for as long as it existed. Um, as if it's completely outlawed, as if um, uh, international laws and international standards apply to everybody except for Israel. It, it continues to, to exist in the state of exception. Um, and I think it's time 
um, that that is not the case. It's time that we push for um, an actual uh, implications and to hold Israel accountable until it complies with international laws, until it actually upholds principles of democracy, equality, equity, and, and what have you, which, which it doesn't, and they know that very well. I don't know how much uh, you've been in touch with your mother, of course, considering the circumstances, but also your sister, I know, uh, uh, lives in Palestine, I assume, and she had some visiting or some time to, to visit her. Uh, are there any uh, plans, assuming that Israel is going to release your mother in, in seven months? Uh, what are her plans for the future? Um, I, that's a good question, and I wish I could ask it. Uh, I, I, I wish I could ask her that question. Um, to answer your, your first question, Jamal, no, I haven't had any contact with my mom directly since she was rearrested um, in the end of October 2019. The only way that I receive any information from my mom is through lawyers, um, as well as released prisoners when she's able to send letters with them, whether it be orally or sometimes in, in, in writing, but in a very rushed, uh, rushed, rushed way. So um, my, my father and my sister who currently live in Palestine and Ramallah have been able to visit a few times. Um, and of course they need a permit and they need to keep applying for a permit to visit her. Um, so uh, thankfully they managed to see her through that, but uh, I would like to clarify to the listeners that the uh, the family visits, um, it's, it's a very complicated and harsh process. And Israel does that, of course, on purpose to put also pressure and um, difficulty and barriers for the families of prisoners. Um, when we have a political prisoner in, in Israel who's Palestinian, it's really a collective punishment to the whole family because the family is forced to apply for these military permits. In some cases, they get rejected. Um, for example, my, my grandma, um, my mother's mother, and my mother's father, my grandfather, when he was alive, uh, they both were not permitted to go visit um, because Israel decided there's no kin, there's no um, relationship, including some of her sisters. So um, even the, the, the process of going to the, to the visit itself is extremely humiliating. It's long, it's difficult. We're subject to um, full body search. Um, we're subject to being yelled at and humiliated. The visit itself lasts between uh, 30 minutes and 45 minutes. Um, and there's a dividing glass between the visiting member and, and the, um, the prisoner. And there's Israeli soldiers on both sides, fully armed throughout the whole visit. So um, we kind of check on her. And of course, the, uh, the conversations that take place over the phone are, um, are tapped and um, under, you know, uh, surveillance. So it's, it's really limited what you can, what you can discuss with the prisoners because of privacy issues. I mean, um, if, if every word is being listened to, um, but I do know, so I, I don't know what my mom's plans are. And, and I really wish I could just speak with her. The last time I visited her was in her previous arrest in 2017. Um, and I visited her three days after her father has, uh, passed away after my grandfather died. So I was the one, and it wasn't the first time I see her in a year and a half. Um, I was the one, you know, I had 45 minutes to tell her that her father had passed away and uh, to catch up. Um, it was a very difficult visit. So, um, you know, what, what can you do? What can you say in this, in these circumstances in 45 minutes under, under these conditions? Um, but I do know that my mother has always always, no matter what, being committed to the principles that she stands for. I know that my mother is going to continue within whichever capacity she chooses to uh, advocate and fight for Palestinian, uh, for the Palestinian people, for our freedom, for our liberation, and for our equal rights. Now, we know, I mean, spending time, of course, in Israeli jail is no picnic. Uh, prisoners are subjected to all kinds of abuse, uh, physically and uh, mentally. And uh, I've read that uh, your mother actually has uh, some health issues. How is she doing now? Um, yeah, my mom has a 
pre-existing health health issues and conditions. Uh, her her medical situation is stable at the moment. Um, one thing that we have successfully maintained that she gets while she's in prison are, are her medications and regular checkups. And I think Israel is is not interested in in my mom having any uh, health complications while she's inside prison. So they're being extra careful with that, not because um, uh, of them, you know, uh, not because of of good faith or, or or goodwill, but rather just the the fear of a of a scandal in if something uh, does happen to her while she's inside. So as far as I know, uh, for now, she is stable. Um, all the Palestinian prisoners have received their, their COVID vaccines, again, after a fight and after the prisoners movement itself from inside prison fought for that, because at the beginning, um, Israel would uh, only vaccinate the guards and was refusing to va to vaccinate the prisoners. Uh, as we know now, the Palestinians, of course, don't get that um, same uh, right. Uh, but as for prisoners, uh, for now, they all have been vaccinated. Well, I think they did that because they uh, were worried about the uh, the contact with uh, the guards, even for the vaccine and also uh, Israelis, they didn't do it for uh, the love of Palestinians because they haven't been vaccinating Palestinians in the West Bank, even though they've been vaccinating uh, settlers uh, who live a uh, few hundred feet away from, from uh, Palestinians. Now, uh, I know your mother was uh, subject to a lot of uh, duress, and, uh, and this is something like the Israelis do. And, um, you know, because it's not enough for them to hold her, even though they can do that indefinitely because her, because she's very vocal about her criticism. So they have drummed up charges. So in a plea deal that, what, that I was reading, uh, she, they charge her uh, as being a member of the Popular Front uh, for the Liberation of Palestine. And, and they say that they consider it as a terror group, as you know. Uh, there's nothing happening with the Popular Front uh, for the Liberation of Palestine. Just like there is nothing happening with Fatah, which used to be uh, on the terror group and others. So uh, I don't understand the, the, how is that is connected as far as holding up your mother or releasing her, uh, except that, that of her criticism of the occupation and the state of apartheid. Mm -hmm. Do you have yeah, any more information on, on this? Uh, yeah, well, uh, that's really the uh, the thread Israel was holding onto, right? Since this, since the moment they arrested her the first time, you know, um, issuing press releases that we we capped or we uh, we arrested um, a leader in a terrorist organization, and you know. Um, for listeners who, who aren't aware, perhaps, and uh, I know for Palestinians, we, we all know this, but uh, many people wouldn't know this, that every Palestinian party is considered uh, a terrorist organization according to Israeli laws, right? So, uh, and as we know in the Palestinian community, every person, every family is connected to a uh, political party in one way or another. They don't have to be uh, holding membership cards, but it's kind of a, it, it's just part of a societal, cultural um, nature of the Palestinian society that, you know, every family is kind of affiliated with one political party or another. And that's because simply we are people under occupation and have been for all of our lives. So, um, you know, the, the fact that every political party is criminalized and the fact that every Palestinian is somehow affiliated with a political party, whether they choose to or not, um, to me, that means that Israel basically has the green light to arrest any Palestinian under the same banner and under the same crime as they refer to it. Um, so the fact that, you know, and, and they've done that with my mom when they couldn't find anything actually to charge her with, um, you know, they would say membership or leadership of a, of a political organization that's considered a criminal organization. Well, that really applies to every Palestinian who can be arrested and tried based on affiliation or membership. And just to elaborate a little bit on the outrageous and really difficult to fathom Israeli uh, military law, 
which is different than what we used to here in Canada and the and the United States. You know, we have uh, we have common law, we have um, uh, rules rules of natural justice, and what have you. This doesn't doesn't exist in military um, in the military law in in Israel, which is uh, a legal system designed to govern Palestinians almost exclusively. Um, so, you know, for example. In twenty uh, in twenty fifteen, when they arrested my mom, they they really tried. They didn't, I think, expect the uh, the international community and and the PR nightmare that that brought them. So they said, "We really need to charge her with something, right?" Um, and you know, th they levied themselves and then managed to kind of put a, a, a list of twelve charges. And if you look at the list of charges, they're laughable. They're they're you know they include participating in a book fair. They have pictures of my mom going to participate in a book fair that was put by students in Birzeit University. They include, those charges may include if you ever sit down with a released prisoner, whoever was charged with something and have a, a cup of coffee, that can be also another charge. Um, the way that they have um, produced evidence and the, the way that they have kind of um, uh, based their evidence on, of course, all of it on um, based on um, torture, torturing of other prisoners, but also um, there was an article released really on some of, one of the evidence that they they uh, that they gathered, where they they presented to another political prisoner a lineup of um, of pictures. All of these pictures are of men, except for my mom. <laughs> and then they asked the prisoner who was under torture, who's Khalid Jarrar? Right? That was one of the evidence that was admissible in Israeli uh, military court. So, um, again, to us, any charges that they really fabricate and attach to her, including those charges that they attach to many other political prisoners just for being members or they, you know, so called leaders. We know the reason why my mom is imprisoned. The reason she's imprisoned is because of the representative role she plays uh, for the Palestinian people within the Palestinian society and her role as an elected member of the Legislative Council, as well as her role internationally in terms of advancing the rights of the Palestinian people, in terms of exposing the crimes of, of the Israeli uh, apartheid regime, and in, in regards to her role in, in our society, in advancing women's rights, in bettering our societal structure. So all of these things Israel is not really interested in. Well, we hope uh, that she'll get released soon. And uh, we've been talking to Yafa Jarrar, the uh, daughter, she's an attorney living in Canada, daughter of Khalida Jarrar, a Palestinian political prisoner. Thank you, and we hope, uh, we hope the best, really, for your mom. Thank you so much for having me, Jamal. So this was just uh, wow. Very compelling, a great Jamal. interview with uh, Yafa Jarrar. She's a uh, Palestinian-Canadian lawyer who talked about the plight of her mother who remains in Israeli jail. And this is not the first time that the Israelis have arrested her. But as you know, there are more than uh, 40 Palestinian women who remain in Israeli jails. That's true, Jamal. Not only 40 Palestinian women who remain in Israeli jails, but the hundreds of children who remain in Israeli jails. And we know, for example, that because of the policy of indefinite detention that uh, Israel practices illegally against uh, Palestinians, men, women, and children, we know that these uh, charges are frequently, you know, uh, secretly put against people. People are not shown evidence. They're not, they don't know their charges, and they're indefinitely detained without any judicial review, contrary to everything uh, that has ever been enshrined when it comes to international law. And Israel doesn't discriminate against men, women, and children. All Palestinians who are in Israeli prisons are under this cloak of indefinite detention for which they can be renewed every six months, kept without knowing their charges and without having access to their family. It's a very medieval form of uh, 
uh, justice that the Israelis kind of rely on to silence Palestinians when they get arrested. That's right. And moving to our next topic, which is a topic that we've been talking about for the, the past ICC, weeks. The ICC, right. Which is the ICC. And finally, the ICC decides to hear from Palestinians and, and, and to accept their claim uh, you know, against Israel for its atrocities in, in Gaza and uh, in, in the West Bank. And uh, we spoke last week about Netanyahu basically labeling that ruling as anti-Semitic. Um, you know, in fact, this came under a lot of pushback from Jewish organizations and, and from the EU itself. So uh, on March 3rd, which is yesterday, Jess, uh, Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State of the United States, uh, put out a tweet and then he put out also a uh, press release. People can go to the State Department's uh, website to see the press release, but uh, basically what he's saying that that the United States will continue to uphold our strong commitment to Israel and its security, including by opposing actions that seek to target Israel unfairly. So you it's, read the whole press release and of course his tweet. It's rubbish, uh, Jamal. It's rubbish. It's, it's backing Benjamin Netanyahu. He didn't go as far as saying that its ruling is anti-Semitic, but he said that Israel is again being targeted unfairly, the same scenario when the entire world, including Europe, you know, uh, support the ICC. And that's the whole idea behind putting this body, creating this body to bring uh, war criminals to, to justice. Well, Jabal, it's no secret that Israel uh, is not a signatory to the ICC. And the reason they're not a signatory is for the obvious reason. If you commit war crimes, if you go against international law, if you kill civilians, you would never want to sign on to the ICC. And so only thugs, despots, and war criminals refuse to sign on to the ICC. Israel's atrocities that they committed in 2014. Now, we have to remind our viewers and listeners that the war from 2008 to 2009 and then 2012 and then 2014, this particular prosecution of the ICC has to do with the atrocities in the 50 days of shelling and indiscriminate killing that uh, Israel engaged in in 2014. So for 50 days, 2,100 men, women, and children were killed and massacred uh, during that campaign in Gaza. And this is, in fact, what the chief prosecutor, uh, Fatou uh, Bensouda, is uh, going to be investigating, actually beginning next week, Jamal. And the entire world saw these atrocities live and in person because of the filming and the uh, videos that were that were uh, you know you know published you know online at the time and the rubbish that somehow the Secretary of State says that they are going to support Israel when they are unfairly targeted. What does it mean that uh, the Israelis can commit these atrocities, be held accountable, and that's somehow singling out? Uh, the Israelis. It's complete rubbish. No one buys this. Oh, it's anti-Semitic to hold Israel accountable. Nobody buys this anymore. And finally, you know, we we will put our our faith and the trust, obviously, in the ICC doing a fair and just assessment of what happened in 2014. But this could just be the beginning, Jamal, of a longer term investigation of Israeli war crimes. And to show you how serious the Israelis are taking this, Jamal, they have been briefing top officials, military officials and political officials in the Israeli Knesset and military establishment about their potential liability if the ICC rulings go against Israel. So they're taking it very seriously, despite what they're saying publicly. Well, here is the thing. Um, I mean, uh, we have a change, of course, in government right here in the United States. A lot of people expected that the uh, Biden administration will be different. Uh, they'll be different than the Trump administration uh, on the moving of the embassy to Jerusalem. They have not been. 
uh, on the annexation of the, or approving the annexation of the Golan Heights. We haven't heard anything about it except that we'll see. Uh, on protecting Palestinians and, and their rights, you know, uh, or speaking uh, against uh, the uh, medical apartheid that Israel practices. Instead, we hear them praising Israel doing, for doing a great job and glossing over the fact that half the population remains uh, not vaccinated. And now comes this ICC ruling, and if we go historically to the establishment of the ICC and all the decisions that the United States ha has made before, whether it's uh, in the case of Bosnia, Serbia and Bosnia, and um, right. Africa, many African right. countries like Sudan and others, they always supported bringing war criminals to justice, except for when Israel commits these crimes. Well, I have, I have kind of news for the Israelis. World, and we've been talking about this, Jamal. We have spoken about this the last couple of shows. And the theme is, has the, uh, has the Israeli brand, the brand that is referred to as Israel, been tarnished? And will it now change somewhat on the world stage? If we leave the United States out of it, and we look at what's been happening with the ICC, the European perspective, what's been happening with the BDS movement, I think that this is the dawn of a new era for the Israelis, finally, and again, keeping the United States out of this, finally being held accountable in these small ways with the ICC, with some of the recent BDS rulings. And this could be a time where we're beginning to see an opening and finally being able to hold the Israelis accountable for the war crimes that they've been committing in Palestine for so many years. Now, this is small, Jamal. Let's, let's keep in mind that the atrocities and the war crimes that have been committed against Palestinian men, women, and children over the decades now, we're just talking about what happened in 2014, which was you know, gruesome and horrific in terms of the scope of the 50 days of nonstop uh, killing that occurred in Gaza at that time. But it's a beginning. And um, we will be reporting on the ICC and its investigation. And um, I, I, for one, am very cautiously optimistic that the ICC will take this very seriously. You're listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco. 89.9 FM, 0.5 FM. Am I making that mistake? Oh, it's horrible. It's okay. <laughs> so, Jamal, anyway. let me ask you a question. What the heck is happening at Harvard with Cornell West? It's very interesting well, to me, right? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, there's a couple of things, and I'll ask you that later about the tenureship aspect. But, of course, everyone knows the world-famous Harvard professor or Harvard Divinity School professor of the practice of public philosophy, who announced last week, and that kind of surprising, that why did he go back to Harvard without tenureship? But he said that the, he has been denied academic tenure. Uh, he claimed that he was being punished for his views on Israel's occupation of Palestine. And I'm quoting some of what he said. This is what he said. This is my hypothesis because given the possibilities of why they would not be even interested in initiating a tenure process. They're not even interested. Imagine for someone with his stature, what else could it be? And then he goes on to say, the problem is that talking about the Israeli occupation of Palestine is a taboo issue among certain circles in high places. It is hard to have a robust, respectful conversation about the Israeli occupation because you are immediately viewed as an anti-Jewish hater or having anti-Jewish prejudices. This is what this world-famous professor had to endure and, and, and say, just the first thing when I ask you, you know, he started with Harvard and he had his issues with them, went to Princeton, now he's back. But in, it, I'm kind of like surprised, why would he return 
without having the tenureship on his contract before he sets foot on campus? That's a very good question, Jamal. And I did a little kind of research and digging into that. And part of the reason is that he and his family wanted to move back to Boston to live in the Boston area. And I guess they were they were kind of uh, sick of New Jersey for, for a while. So he made the decision at the time to take care of himself and his family and decided that he would go back to Harvard without the full uh, tenure position. And of course, because given his world uh, notoriety and his stature and his publication history, which is unmatched, really, if you think about the extent of his uh, uh, publication record, which is, you know, just stellar, he decided that for the good of his family, he would go back to Boston, he would take the position in the Harvard Divinity School and not not and go without tenure, but now he's basically saying, "Well, I've uh, you know my contract is up now. Now this is time for the you know system of tenure review to be initiated, so that this position that I'm having at Harvard can be a fully tenured position." Now, Harvard is the the current president of Harvard, and the the messaging that has come out that they're 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 really full of BS. They're saying we fully support our African-American, you know, faculty. We'll do anything we can to support them. But they're really not saying anything about Professor West. Um, In the Harvard Divinity School itself, there are only two out of, I think, 20 uh, faculty who are African-American, which is, you know, rather stunning. And the total number of African-American faculty at Harvard is well below the average that you would expect at such a, you know, prestigious university, Ivy League school. So basically, Jamal, and we've been covering this how many decades now? We've been covering it with Professor Abdul Hadi. We've been covering it in so many ways where people who have uh, been advocates for holding the Israelis accountable and having, as Cornell West said, a robust debate about Israeli occupation and colonization of historic Palestine. The only reason he is being challenged and denied the opportunity to come up for a tenure review is simple. He has questioned and is engaged in a thoughtful analysis about Israeli colonial apartheid. That's There's no other way to look at it. Um, Professor West would get tenure at any other university at any time. It would be unimaginable for him to not get it. But here's the thing, Jamal. There's more than a 50-50 chance that he'll be denied the opportunity for a tenure review. And that's just a shame in this in this era. Well, we plan to get Dr. West on this show to talk about it, hopefully, yeah. uh, in the near uh, future. So we have a few minutes just uh, left in the show. And today, <laughs> we forgot to mention at the top of the hour, Thursday, March 8th, is the day, according to some in the QAnon community, that Donald Trump this it's is the real inauguration be, day. He's <laughs> supposed to be reinaugurated as president. And, uh, you know, we're not making this up, right? This is according to the QAnon uh, followers. We spoke to our reporter, uh, Phil Pasquini, about this. He's right in front of the Capitol. QAnon adherents, having adopted Thursday, March 4th, as the next day they believe Democrats will be arrested en masse and that former President Trump will be re-inaugurated as president. This conspiracy, conspiracy theory goes back all the way uh, to Ulysses S. Grant, who was inaugurated on March 4th, 1869. And of course, many of the QAnon followers took part in the January 6th Capitol riot. QAnon's March 4th threat has Washington, D.C. on high alert. Joining us near the Capitol, our reporter, Phil Pasquini. What's going on, Phil? Uh, Well, the Capitol is uh, ramped up security very high around the uh, perimeter of the building and Capitol Hill. And I think you'll see during this report, there'll be a number of police cars, FBI's and so on uh, running around 
randomly. Besides which, they have the National Guard. There are more guards out today than I've seen in the past week around the perimeter fence. You can see the Capitol there in the background. It's very well guarded. As you know, the both houses have shut down business for today. Uh, and so government, for the most part, has come to a halt, although I understand they're trying to work uh, through Zoom and other programs from home. So uh, things are tense. People are worried, uh, not just for today, but for March 5th, Friday, and on March 6th on Saturday, the days that the uh, intel says that there are going to be disruptions or an attempt to storm the Capitol again. So you will not be attending any inauguration balls uh, for no. Donald Trump today? No, I won't. And, I, and no one seems to know where they are. I've made several inquiries and uh, nobody knows. In fact, we don't even know where the inauguration is going to take place. We follow the conspiracy tomorrow, March 5th. This is the day when they're going to line everybody up, have a military tribunal, and then public executions. But, you know, a lot of it is just fluff and puff in order to disrupt government. They've done that beautifully. So they've achieved their goals, whether they show up or not, it's another matter. However, if they do show up, they will be met with a sizable force uh, to meet them. So meet and greet, if you will. So, uh, like you said it, uh, I mean, this whole conspiracy theory is uh, nonsense, yet they've managed to have... Uh, both houses, the in Congress and the Senate, not to show up to work today. They were working late to pass bills yesterday to finish things, and they're taking the day off. I mean, that that right. this costs the government also millions of dollars having uh, this high alert of uh, the National Guard, the FBI, the uh, Capitol Police. Yeah, as it has since January, the, just the fencing. There's miles and miles and miles of fencing some of which is beginning to come down now, but the White House is still hardened uh, all around the ellipse, uh, major federal buildings, and including the fence around the perimeter of the Capitol, which is a huge area. So you have all these expenses going on. Uh, there goes the Chinese flag and the American flag upside down just now, if you saw that in the background. <laughs> um, we got all kinds of people coming out, you know, and... Uh, Frustration, celebration, and who knows what else. You know, for every person, there's a story, as they say. Uh, unfortunately, it's disruptive, um, and at, at a time when we should be focusing on other things, getting the financial aid package passed, and dealing with COVID, which is still a huge threat. Even though there's been announcements about the large amount of vaccines available, we still don't have a viable system of equal and democratic distribution. Um, so, you know, we, we need to concentrate on other things. And this is just another uh, example of terrorists and insurrectionists disrupting government, unfortunately. Well, uh, folks, here you heard it right here. Donald Trump is not going to be re-inaugurated again on March 4th on Thursday. <laughs> Breaking news. Thank you, Phil, for this report. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'll talk to you soon. That's Phil Pasquini, Arab Talk correspondent, uh, right in front of the Capitol, talking about, and, and Jamal, where, where do we begin with this craziness uh, of the QAnon believers who believe that today would have been the day where Donald Trump uh, would have been fully inaugurated as the real president of the United States? Uh, the craziness continues. Um, the security... Uh, threat was so significant today, Jamal, that the Congress decided that they would not hold session today in the midst of, you know, a pandemic and in the midst of so much, so much legislative work that needs to be done. The uh, Congress decided that they were going to not come in today because of the security threat. I, you know, this is a level of delusion that is going to challenge the, our, our, our experiment in democracy in ways that we can't even imagine, Jamal. It's quite shocking to me. Well, here's the thing, Just I mean, we, we have been talking about these kooks, and I'm going to label them as kooks and terrorists. Many of them are. And of course, uh, whatever they put out there on the internet, that's not going to happen. However, 
they scored a win. I mean, from from their perspective, they prevented Congress from meeting today and possibly tomorrow because of the security threat. They've cost the, uh, the this country millions of dollars in additional security and having the uh, right. National Guard. And they've got media attention, you know, be, albeit it's small. Nevertheless, I mean, it's enough of a happening that, um, you know, they, they keep bringing this to the front burner. And then what we are seeing in the debate in Congress with uh, certain congressmen and congresswomen, as we've seen from Florida and wherever, who are still in denial that uh, Donald Trump lost the election. They keep Absolutely. They're still debating this. I mean, and it's, it's, it's scary. And on, on, on this note, uh, uh, just I read today a report, and this is coming from the UK. We don't have time to... Uh, discuss it, but I'm sure it matches probably uh, the report here that they, that for the first time uh, in many years in the UK, they've arrested more white people on terrorism charges than any of the years before combined uh, arresting foreign well, nationals just- and or brown and black people. These are said white people have been posing in the UK the highest number of terrorist threat to the country. Well, let me just add something quick to that, Jamal. The FBI director yesterday, Christopher Wray, did announce, in fact, that they have 2,000 open cases investigating white supremacy domestic terrorism right now in the country. They have 2,000 active investigations looking at white supremacy domestic terrorism right now in this country, Jamal. So, this is, this is something that we're going to obviously be talking about for many, many months, if not years to come, because this cancer of white supremacy and domestic terrorism emanating from QAnon, emanating from the Trump, uh, uh, Trump four years um, is not, I keep saying this, Jamal, and I'm sorry to say it, it's not going away. In mm-hmm. fact, if you look at Trump's CPAC, uh, you know, talk that he gave his presentation on Sunday was his self-anointing then he's going to run for in 2024 he's the self-appointed ruler of the Republican Party right now it's it's going to be a dark next four years Jamal even though President Biden is our current president well, you've been listening to Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest episodes, and we will talk to you next week. See you next week. <laughs>